This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. We have a really special show for you today, uh, a guest who's been with us a number of times before, uh, and they seem to occur at very interesting moments in the markets and for the Fed. We'll be talking with Jim Bullard, who is the president and CEO of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, he has been one of the outspoken members uh, and, and, and his view on inflation and interest rates are going to be really interesting uh, to hear his latest thoughts. Professor, you've been talking a lot about the Fed and the markets. We also have the Ukraine situation, which I'd love to get your view on what's been happening this week in the markets before we get to Jim. What's your, your current read of, of the current dynamics? Well, I, I think what we have here um, is a, a rally that's based on uh, an expectation um, that uh, the Fed, because of the Ukraine situation, uh, will not be uh, as tight as it would otherwise. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very, very anxious to uh, get uh, Jim's view on whether uh, the Fed should change course or should not change course. I have my strong ideas, which I'm going to interject on on that, but I want his ideas uh, first on that. Uh, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, I mean, we have actually, you know, WTI oil now is 91, which is actually uh, below where it was before the invasion. Um, uh, 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 I have voiced many times that I think what the Fed does is many, many times more important uh, to the market than what is happening in Ukraine. Now, what is happening in Ukraine is it's a tragedy. Um, and Putin is really, I, I don't know whether war criminal is, is, is appropriate, but uh, has no justification for this. And it, it is very upsetting to me. But in terms of the U.S. markets, uh, I have to say that the uh, what is happening to the Fed and what's happening elsewhere uh, globally is, is is going to be far more important. I mean, oil was heading way before the tensions increased uh, to a high, um, and many people talked about a hundred or or higher. Uh, and certainly, uh, uncertainties in Ukraine is certainly going to add maybe four, five, six dollars to barrel. Um, but that's not going to be the big picture. I think that's going to be uh, in the markets. The big picture in the markets is going to be how strong the economy is going to be, how much inflation. We're going to have in um, uh, 2022, and how strong would or should the Fed push back on that? So that is, I think, going to be the way I'm going to introduce our discussion with um, with Jim, if I may. Jim, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. It's always fun to uh, chat with you guys. Thank you. Uh, it's very interesting, as as, uh, as Jeremy said at the onset. We were, um, it was almost exactly a year ago that we last spoke. And um, uh, Jeremy provided me with the link. I actually listened back to our entire interview. It was it was really uh, fascinating. And I want to, I, 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 I want to talk about that and jump ahead. But I want to first ask a question i think that everyone that is listening to this show is probably is 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 wanting to know you came out um very strong uh a few weeks ago after uh bad inflation news saying the fed had to be very aggressive um and that uh, the data may support uh, a 50 basis point uh, increase uh in your march meeting my my question is do you believe that uh, the events in the Ukraine um, justify the Federal Reserve uh, to be less aggressive 
Uh, and and uh, if so, why? And if, if not, why? Yeah, I think the uh, fighting in Ukraine is something that has been around uh, off and on for the last, you know, couple of decades. Uh, so in that sense, it's not really that new. This is a bigger, more aggressive Russia here, uh, but, uh, you know, I think the baseline expectation has to be that there will not be a wider war uh, associated with this. With There are risks around that. You never know. And we'll watch it uh, very carefully. But I, I would say the direct linkages to the U.S. economy are minimal, and so I wouldn't expect that much impact directly on the U.S. economy but, of course, we'll have to watch this very carefully and, and see what happens in uh, days and days ahead. Yes. Yeah, so does that mean that you yourself have not changed what your opinion of how much tightening uh, is necessary to um, slow the inflationary forces? Well, just to level set everybody, what I said, uh, was, and I would stick with this, is that I'd like to see us uh, have the policy rate at, uh, you know, over uh, 1% by July 1st. So this is a statement about what has to happen during the spring here. And also that I'd like to see a uh, balance sheet uh, runoff begin in the second quarter, uh, I'd like to see both those things occur by July 1. Now, the exact timing is probably not as critical as the idea that uh, that we uh, get this removal of accommodation in place in an environment where core PC inflation came out today at 5.2% measured from one year earlier. So that that particular number is the one that is the... Uh, gets the most focus on the FOMC, and uh, that number hasn't been that high in since the Volcker era. Um, it's also, if you go before the Volcker era, it's about the same as it was in 1973-74. Um, so you've got a very high uh, inflation outcome here, and we're still... Uh, have the policy rate at zero. We're still actually buying assets uh, as of today. It's going to end very soon here, but um, we haven't really, I, I think, uh, moved fast enough given the inflation developments, and so that's why I'd stick with uh, with what I said before about uh, you know getting uh, 100 basis points on the on the policy rate by July one. Then we could assess at that point uh, where we're at and what, what the next steps would be. But I think it's very clear that we have to get at least to that point uh, in the next 90 days or so. Uh, and then and then we'll see from there. I guess it's 100, 120 days, sorry. Uh, next 120 days or so, and then we'll, we go from there and, and assess. So uh, now the timing of that and exactly how to do that and, and manage that at, at various junctures I think is up to the chair. And he's uh, always been very good at, at uh, maneuvering, but from a macroeconomic perspective, you know, you probably don't, you, you don't, it doesn't, the exact timing doesn't matter so much. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let me say I'm very pleased that you're sticking with the fact that we have to remove accommodation quickly, and um, uh, uh uh, there's a number of people who now think, oh, the Fed is not is going to go much slower and the rate is not going to be as high. I, I think, in my opinion, that would be a major policy mistake. Uh, I think there is urgency. Uh, and I think I'm giving you credit as being one of the first, if not the very first, uh, FOMC member to, to voice the urgency that I think is, is needed to to slow down uh, that uh, th that growth. You say after uh, July 1st we would assess. Um, um, do you have any – you're going to be asked in a, in a couple weeks, of course, to to project out inflation and, um, and GDP growth. 
unemployment, but, and, but also, of course, uh, the famous dot plot and expectations of Fed funds. Um, and one of it will will be year end. Um, uh, do you what what is your current assessment of what we where we have to be by this year end to accomplish our monetary objectives? Well, uh, what I think is going to happen is that we'll still have core PCE inflation running at 3.5% by the end of the year, and that's not going to be a good uh, outcome, and it's going to damage Fed credibility on our inflation target. We have a 2% inflation target. The core PCE is already throwing out food and energy, uh, which is, you know, itself its own topic of discussion, but uh, a lot of people have talked about the energy component uh, as associated with the Russia-Ukraine situation. But uh, if, even if you strip that out, you've got this very high uh, inflation number. And I, I think, uh, you know, in all likelihood, it will remain high in the second half of the year. Uh, even if we go to 100 basis points on the, on the policy rate by July 1st, um, we still have more work to do in the second half of the year to actually get to a position where we can put downward pressure on inflation and move inflation back to our 2% target, maintain credibility for the Fed for the, uh, for the 2% target. So I think that's a challenge that's ahead of us here, and that's why it's important to get off these emergency settings. Our, our policy settings are really the same ones that we had um, very early in the pandemic, we've moved the policy rate down uh, to the effective lower bound, close to zero, and then uh, we we started buying assets, which we're still doing today. Uh, but it's uh, very clear now that we got more inflation than we bargained for out of that, and so now we're going to have to uh, pull some of that back, maintain our inflation target, and uh, get to a nice stable outcome for the U.S. economy in the years ahead. So uh, in, what you're saying is when uh, – I, I presume when you're asked to fill out the, the your projections for year-end, you're going to place something around 3.5% for PCE core. Uh, yeah, well, I that, wouldn't commit at this point because we haven't actually done the analysis here. We'll do that uh, in the run-up to the meeting. And so mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to prejudge that. And I'll take some input from my uh, staff on that. But just sitting here today – uh, you know, I don't think it's reasonable to say that um, the uh, core inflation is going to fall, you know, rapidly in the second half of the year. It could happen, but that's, I don't think that should be the base case. And the concern would be that not only does it not decelerate, but perhaps even accelerates uh, during the uh, remainder of this year. Um, and I think there are some reasons to think that it might uh uh, you've got Omicron now coming to a close pretty rapidly, and I, I would expect a reopening or the remaining reopening of the economy to occur in the second and third quarter of this year. So that sounds like a boom to me uh, for the U.S. economy. And, and uh, if anything, you know, you'd get upward pressure on inflation through that channel. You've still got $2.5 trillion sitting in bank accounts of, uh, of households. You've got bankers saying they've got more deposits uh, than they can handle. And so it, it looks to me like uh, if you think that the pandemic's really coming to an end here, uh, that you'd get a further boost to the U.S. economy. That's why I've kept my GDP forecast for 2022 up at 35 to 4%. And just as a reminder to listeners, the potential GDP growth of the U.S. is usually thought to be around 2%. So you'd still be growing way above uh, the long-run rate. And uh, that's going to continue to put pressure on labor markets. Uh, I'm still expecting the unemployment rate to go down uh, below uh, 3% this year. Uh, wow, know. that would be... Yeah, I mean, I'm oh, saying that a little seven, bit. 70 uh, years, is it? Yeah, it'd be like the early 1950s. But, I mean, if yeah. you look at what's happened to the labor market, um, and I've become more fond of the Kansas City Fed's Labor Market Conditions Index, which is above the pre-pandemic level and is hand- heading 
to a point where it's going to be above the late 1990s level, which was the very best labor market of the post-war era. So I think unemployment is going to continue to uh, fall, uh, maybe not in a straight line, but it's going to continue to fall uh, during 2022. Um, in 2021, it declined at two-tenths per jobs report, uh, so that was a very fast uh, fall in the unemployment rate. But now I think it'll, even if it slows down to just one-tenth per jobs report, you'd still get below uh, 3% unemployment in at the end of 2022. So I think, uh, you know, I'm, I think this continued reopening, you know, you know, when you have headlines about geopolitics, then you kind of lose focus a little bit. But the continued reopening and the fading of Omicron, I think, is a very bullish factor for the U.S. economy. I, I think so, too. And, 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 and certainly just uh, for the welfare of our economy. Um, mm-hmm. in, in your discussion, if, if we believe that it, 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 inflation will stay high, and I do, uh, I think it's even going to be higher than that. But I don't and, and if if unemployment goes below three percent, uh, tell me how even a two percent Fed funds rate by year end um, would be sufficient. That that, as you know, would still be a, a very negative a real rate. Um, uh, how how would that be sufficient to cut? inflation at that point? Well, uh, I think a lot of people are thinking, no, that's not going to be enough, uh, and certainly would not have been enough in the in the Greenspan era. Um, but I, I can give a ray of hope or a couple rays of hope here uh, that will bring inflation under control. One is that the uh, two-year Treasury, as you know, is trading 155 to 160 basis points, um, I didn't see where it was uh, today. It has been trading one sixty one right now. I'm looking at the I'm looking at the one. So it's it's uh, moved up sharply since uh, last October uh, as we took a hawkish pivot on the uh, on the FOMC led by uh, Chair Powell. So that is good news because the market is doing some of the pricing for us at the short end of the of the yield curve. So that's good. That's helping. Um, so now what we have to do is follow through and move the policy rate uh, to validate the expectations that are already in the two years. So that's one thing. Uh, it looks like we haven't done anything, but maybe we have if, you, if you're willing to count the market pricing. Um, the other thing is that in addition to getting 100 basis points by July 1, uh, I would like to start balance sheet uh, runoff in the second quarter here. And so we'd be playing another uh, card that we have is to remove some of the accommodation that came through the very aggressive balance sheet policy. So uh, now that's more controversial in both the academic literature and in financial markets, but I would say that that's helping us to uh, remove some of the accommodation and should move us toward a more neutral policy faster and that might help us to get to a point where we can start to put downward pressure on inflation uh, more rapidly and then get on a glide path uh, to 2% inflation, hopefully uh, starting, uh, uh, you know, in a reasonable time frame. And when, when we talk about balance sheet reduction, are, are, are we talking in the neighborhood of $100 billion a month, $120 billion? I mean, something like the, the uh, accommodation in reverse? Uh, are these the magnitudes that you're thinking of, uh, Jim? Uh, I, the, the details of exactly how this would work uh, have not been totally uh, decided, I think. Um, so there's still debate. Uh, about that, and even among my staff, about what you know exactly how we should do that. But the principle would be that you you could uh, remove accommodation just as fast as you added accommodation. And I think, especially because um, you know, I think it's there's a widespread view in financial markets that uh, we kind of overstate our welcome on asset purchases. We probably didn't have to be going on this long we didn't find a good opportunity to 
and the purchases uh, during the pandemic, but um, but now we have that opportunity, so we should just go ahead and, and take it. And then I would say the initial part, I'd, I'd be happy to do just passive runoff where we just don't replace maturing securities um, How much initially. Yeah, initially, but then I would also like to have a plan B uh, in our pocket so that we could consider asset sales at some point uh, in the future if inflation does not moderate and does not beginning, you know, begin uh, to, re- to return to our inflation target of 2%. Since uh, the pandemic, if I'm right, the Fed is added nearly $4 trillion. Is that is that in the ballpark there, Jim? Well, uh, I guess it's in the ballpark. Uh, it's actually $5 trillion, so... Okay, oh, it's so even more. Okay. $4 trillion is, you know, uh, close to now, $5 trillion. Uh, Okay. <laughs> now, so, um, I mean, to remove, I mean... It, at uh, at uh, I mean I'm I'm trying to think of something uh, how many billion you would have to send uh, I mean uh, you, to to get that down up to anything that is close to where it was pre-pandemic and don't forget we had a fat balance sheet pre-pandemic we're talking we would have to be talking about pretty uh, aggressive um I mean, a uh, hundred yeah. billion, a uh, hundred billion a month only gives you one trillion a year. Yeah. It would yeah. five years to get down to where you were in March of 2020. That's true, uh, but I think it's the, probably the flow is is more important here than the stock. I know there's been a lot of debate about that for a long time, but it's it's pretty clear that the direction of travel is important uh, in financial markets, and I think if we were Reducing the size of the balance sheet that would uh, that would give us some more traction and in keeping inflation under control is true that it would take a while, especially since we have mortgage-backed securities on the, uh, in the, on the balance sheet. The, it would take a while to run down and get all the way back to the pre-pandemic level. But the direction of travel is probably more important. The flow effects are probably more important uh, right now, and I think the signaling value would be strong that the Fed intends to uh, defend its inflation target from the high side. Has there been an estimate if you, you know, go into sale mode, how would that add pressure to, uh, are you, is it first the mortgage backs are going to go, then the long end? I mean, Chairman Powell did lay out a, a kind of a skeleton framework on that. Uh, did, did Was there any estimate about how much that might, pressured the yields on those uh, securities? Yeah, I think this is all premature at this point. I think the uh, the important thing at this point, would, to me anyway, would be to get passive runoff started uh, initially, and then we could assess in mid-year, uh, see how we're doing and, and see where the numbers are, and then we could, uh, we could decide whether we want to go to a plan B uh, where we'd actually consider asset sales, but the the parameters of that are definitely uh, something we the committee would have to decide uh, farther in the future. Yeah, yeah, Jim. As as you remember, last year when we talked in March, um, I, I was extremely concerned with the rapid money growth. Um, uh, probably because I, I spent four years teaching at University of Chicago and I did my research with Milton Friedman. We, we talked, in fact, about the St. Louis Fed. It has a history, uh, a wonderful history of doing research on, on, on monet- monetary growth. I, I have to say I, I have been very disappointed um, in the lack of re- response by the Fed or, or acknowledgement by the Fed that that money growth could be a uh, very uh, important source of the inflationary pressures. Now, I know it's not one for one, and we actually talked about that year ago, but we have never seen money growth. In fact, I said a year ago, we knew that the 2020 money growth on the M2 side had exceeded any uh, single year in the 150-year history that we have such money growth. Um We've increased that M2 growth 40%, as you know. Um, 
and uh, uh, and it is still growing at double digit rates since uh, July 2020. After the bulge uh, hit, it is still at uh, double digit growth, actually uh, 12, 13, 14 percent. This concerns me a lot, and I'm wondering whether it has begun to become or has been brought up or you yourself are concerned about that money growth in terms of feeding the inflationary process? Uh, well, uh, we certainly are the, the monetarist bank historically, and I was certainly influenced by Friedman and his dictum that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. Uh, that's why we call it monetary policy. Uh, that's why central banks do have control over inflation over the medium term. Uh, I think it's uh, the casual story, I think, that's been told around here about money growth and inflation is that at low levels of inflation uh, and low, low, low rates of money growth, it's hard to see the correlations uh, that would otherwise uh, be apparent. So uh, in the last uh couple of decades, it's maybe been much harder to uh, produce empirical evidence that would uh, relate uh, money growth to inflation in a reasonable time frame. Now you've got this burst of money growth, so now perhaps we'll see uh, more analysis and more, um, uh, you know, more better correlations uh, in the data than we would have seen with just the small movements that we had previously. As you note, uh, the money growth has really exploded, M2 in particular, uh, over the last couple of years, and it has coincided with uh, substantially higher inflation than uh, anything we had uh, up until about a year ago. So um, I think that that will be an interesting Thing to analyze, but at the same time, I think it's, it makes sense that it fell out of favor because the empirical relationships were not that good uh, during the 2000s or during the um, during the decade before the pandemic. Right, but the, if you take really long-term data, because I began to look back, actually, until the pandemic hit, uh, we had a 5.5 percent M2 growth, and yes, some years a little more or less, and they couldn't correlate much with what was happening with prices. But 5.5, if you you know, if you subtract two to three percent real growth, you have that famous formula. Um, that the monitors talk about is that you know inflation is money growth in excess of real growth. It didn't. It it came very close. Um, yeah, and, it, it actually works pretty well over that kind of uh, time. Yeah, longer term yeah. period. And 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 yeah. now, uh, I mean, it, we with a forty percent increase in that M one since that. I mean, if you would put it on the five percent trend line, let's say we're thirty percent above on money, where would be if we had followed the 34-year trend of M2 growth? I have been saying that I think that is going to bleed into prices um, it's over a longer period. And, um, and I wish I, I mean, I wish I could have the optimism that you do of going down to three and a half percent by year end. Um, but I'm, I, I'm not I'm not uh, convinced that that is going to happen with 30% above trend and increasing at 12 to 14% a year. You know, we just got last Tuesday again, it's coming out now once a month on the fourth Tuesday of the month. Markets don't talk about it, but I look at it closely. We do not yet see that deceleration. How is the Fed going to get that deceleration down, Uh, the acceleration down? To back to five to six percent levels, consistent with the inflation target of the Fed. Well, uh, another development of the last twenty-five years in macroeconomics has been that uh, uh, you know, of course, expectations are uh, very important for how the macroeconomy works generally and how the inflation process works in particular. And even in models uh, where you do have uh, money growth, you know, tightly associated with uh, inflation, uh, it would matter sort of when you print the money and whether you whether you do this on a permanent basis or on a temporary basis. And then markets would anticipate that you're not going to do this uh, forever. You did this because of the pandemic, uh, and so 
that anticipation effect would mitigate the, uh, you know, I guess what would casually be called the money printing that uh, that occurred, uh, and so therefore things would smooth out and you wouldn't get as big or maybe not as much of uh, the inflation that you would otherwise predict. The, the standard experiment that's done in the textbook is that if you double the uh, money stock, you double the price level, but that is a, uh, that's a permanent doubling of the money stock, you know, leads to a permanent doubling of the price level, and, um, uh, you know, the inflation rate would actually be only the, uh, the increase in the price level there in that experiment. So, uh, but what is really occurring in, the, in reality is probably a temporary increase in the, in the money stock uh, because of the uh, pandemic, and you would get, uh, you know, a return to trend, I guess, at, at some point. So I, I'm rambling on about this, but, uh, but anyway, expectations would, would matter a lot, it, and uh, they matter both ways. They matter whether you printed a lot of money today but aren't going to print that much in the future. That would matter. Or you're not printing anything today, but markets expect you to print a lot in the future. That would matter, too. And so the timing of the uh, of the, uh, uh, the so-called money printing would uh, would matter tremendously. We were talking about the Fed balance sheet. You started talking about the runoffs. And one of the questions I know Professor Siegel has been thinking about uh, is commented that we are going to have a much more inverted curve in the future. You talked about the two-year. Uh, is 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 your view now that we're beginning rate hikes potentially when the the curve is much flatter? How concerned are you about inverted curves in the future? And and is that part of your balance sheet runoff question? Yeah, this is a great question. I know it's been uh, discussed a lot in uh, financial markets. Um, I guess I would uh, hope that uh, if we could get balance sheet runoff started in the second quarter here, that would help us a little bit on the uh, yield curve uh, because you'd be um, raising the policy rate at the short end, but you'd also be releasing some of the pressure uh, out the curve, and so you'd get an uh, increase in rates across the curve instead of just at the short end. So uh, that would be some of the thinking behind uh, getting uh, the balance sheet runoff started. And then there are lots of issues around that about uh, you know the structure of the Fed's balance sheet and exactly how the runoff would occur and so on. Uh, so we could evaluate that. Uh, as we um, get going on the program. Um, so uh, I, I do think that uh, uh, rates will likely uh, rise across the curve here um, because uh, I think growth will be fairly strong this year and um, inflation will still be out there probably further into the future than what has been priced in uh, today. And uh, markets will have to make adjustments uh, for that. And so you can probably get uh, uh, increases across the curve as we start to remove accommodation. And the runoff of the balance sheet means selling, uh, well, you say first uh, of all, say, you're gonna I would say passive runoff. Securities in the market, would that the pressure uh, for that long rate to go up or, or recognition by? Market participants, the economy is stronger, inflation is worse than is now built in. Which of those factors do you think? Yeah, I think one thing I would say about the relatively low 10-year yield is that it does express confidence in the Fed that there won't be a lot of inflation over a 10-year time horizon. So in that sense, I think it's encouraging. Uh, We have to get the current inflation surge under control and return inflation back to our 2% target, but markets are expressing confidence that we'll be able to do that, and so that's, uh, I think, encouraging for the policy that we have. Um, and, and so maybe you would see some inversion because of that. Um, and people have talked about this, that, uh, you know, it's, it's a different story if you're looking at uh, three or four or five years than if you're looking at 10 years, uh, because uh, we do have a lot of credibility over the longer run. Yes, 
I, I wondered, um, you know, when talking about inflation this year and something that I've been talking about for quite a while, and I wonder if it's been discussed at the Fed, is that uh, the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics constructs its inflation measure um, seems to be extremely lagged in the all-important housing um, it's beginning to accelerate now, but you, you, you know when we, we you have spot markets where, of course, we know home prices are up by twenty to thirty percent, and 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 new rental agreements are up by more. And then you look at year over year uh, in in the official statistics, and 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 you see three point nine, three point two, and 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 sometimes lower. And uh, it's because of the sampling technique that they have. But this will actually feed inflation, I think, into the system throughout this year and maybe even into 2023. I, I just wonder if, if this has been something that the Fed has discussed uh, going forward. Uh, no, we've definitely discussed that here at the St. Louis Fed and, and I think across the system, but uh, the, it's absolutely true that the uh, housing component, uh, both the rents and the imputed homeowner uh, rental, uh, are persistent components of the price index, meaning that if you get inflation in those elements, it tends to really stick around for quite a while, um, and I have been concerned about that. Uh, today's report showed, uh, you know, those moving up uh, again. And so uh, I think that this is an indication that inflation is going to be more persistent than we had initially hoped uh, six months ago. Yeah, in fact, I, I, some have calculated that if they did it in a timely way, according to the market rents, we would have actually had 10% inflation next year. Now, of course, that means that, I mean, excuse me, 10% inflation in 2021. That, of course, means that we will not have as much recorded inflation in 22 or 23. But how? Uh, you know, I, I think the seven, seven and a half percent actually understated uh, because of that lagged housing component. How much inflation we actually had last year? Yeah, I, I mean, as you know, it's a tricky uh, calculation, and uh, it is a big component of both the consumer price index inflation and the personal consumption expenditures inflation indexes. And uh, so I, I think this is a, an issue to watch if, if you're concerned about inflation persistence going forward. Uh, one last question. I'm, I want to. I, I do want to get to cryptocurrencies uh, with oh, good. you on that, but there's so much going on with inflation. Um, the, the slowing down of the M2 growth. Um, um, it seems to me that it is. How can that? How can that? How can the Fed directly do that? If it raises rates, it'll slow down loan demand, which. Is, is there if it it does uh, again balance sheet reduction that reduces reserves? But the banks having so many trillions of excess reserves, um, and I certainly uh, acknowledge your signaling issue of, of that we're doing it could to be to the market, but it, it doesn't. Is that could that bite? It seems that any bank that wants to write up a loan that it thinks is prof profitable. Uh, is, is definitely has, has no problem doing that under uh, current conditions. And so I'm trying to see how the loan grows. If people say, hey, I'm going to borrow at 2%, given inflation 7, uh, is, is going to be slowed down. Yeah, I would say the anecdotal reports I received from around the district and around the country on, on um, uh, the banking industry is that they're flush with, uh, deposits and flush with liquidity, uh, but when it comes to the loans, um, you know, the businesses are also flush, so they don't really, you know, they don't, they don't they really don't, need the loan, and so there's a lot of competition for the ones that are out there and those that want to uh, finance uh, a new project, and um, and so it's it's not as clear cut as you might think, you know, where it's just. Uh, 
I mean, I think the banks are doing very well, but but it's not as uh, it's not like they've got this long line of uh, possible borrowers and they can just uh, write all these loans. But then the question is, where is the money coming from right now to feed a 12 to 14 percent growth rate that has now continued over a year in that M2 measure? Uh, well, gosh, this is the most monetarist discussion I've had in a long time. But uh, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I would say, in but broad I, it, terms, it, it seems that yeah, go on, please. Yeah, in broad terms, I would say uh, the um, the pandemic came along, and if there was ever a time when you might want to use your borrowing power of the country uh, to borrow in international markets, this might have been that time, and that's what we did. And then. Uh, and the Fed also had a policy of, um, you know, quantitative easing. So we're buying up a lot of the treasuries. You could interpret that if you want, as a monetarist, you could interpret that as uh, converting uh, the uh, borrowing on international markets into money, and then uh, and that turned into M2 growth and and so on. But that would be a one-time response to the one-time shock. And it would take a while for that to uh, filter out of the system, and so you'd get a one-time increase in inflation from that, but then it would come back to trend. So that would be my my benchmark. Uh, there are a lot of question marks around that little story, uh, but uh, but that would be one way to think about it. Yeah, I mean, what again, what concerns me most, and I agree with you, I think the Fed did a marvelous job, and we talked about that a year ago, about how it rescued during the pandemic I and mean, used blueprints that we used during the great financial crisis quite appropriately and went beyond it. It was an excellent response. What, what concerned me is after that big bump, I would have, you know, I, I see money growth at that, that 12 and 13%. And, and during the seventies, the money growth was eight, nine percent. And we had eight, nine, ten percent inflation. Now, this is actually faster. Now, nowhere near as long. So if it comes under control, I'm not talking about an inflation like the 70s. But, um, you know, again, I think control of that is is important. Let, let me jump because I don't want to stay on a monetarist kick for, for, for too long, <laughs> although the Fed is, as you say, uh, you, you guys produce that uh, that money. Um, Good way to go to uh, cryptocurrency here, Professor. Yeah, I wanted to go to cryptocurrency, uh, and of course we've had we've had a fall in, in the cryptocurrency. I want to ask a, a broad question, and um, you know, there's been talk of digital central bank currency, but uh, is let me ask a broader threat um, that may, in fact, feed inflationary forces in in the future uh, if cryptocurrency becomes more popular and is begun to be used as a money um, that of course means that that the dollar would be less used as a money and we all know from you know basic finance 101 if there's going to be less demand for money even if you guys rein in supply that is inflationary people uh you know, less, less, less demand for money. The money would be pushed around even more. Um, uh, you've got to be sure to defend the money and make money and money transfers to be far more efficient than, than crypto if you want to hold the dollar to be an, the, the currency that you control so that you can control economic movements. And I'm framing this question to see whether you have thought about it or whether the Fed has discussed it and uh, whether this could be a threat into the future. Uh, on the efficiency of the payment system, uh, we do have our Fed Now program uh, ongoing. Uh, I think we're making uh, lots of great progress on that, and so that will get at this question of the efficiency of the payment system. So um, I would argue it's already pretty efficient, but we can drive it even even uh, to make it even more efficient. And uh, I think our FedNow program uh, will do that. Uh, the cryptocurrency is, um, uh, I think I'm the only FOMC member that has a actual paper that's published that had uh, both public uh, currency issuance and private currency issuance going on at the same time. 
And uh, what happened in, in the model is that uh, you needed both types of uh, currency. They could both coexist um, because the, uh, the privately issued currency uh, facilitated transactions that w- couldn't be done or were difficult to do with the publicly issued currency. So I think that's very much the tension uh, that's going on today where you have you can send dollars all around the world uh, electronically in the blink of an eye, so it's not really that. It's that certain types of transactions have regulatory uh, restrictions around them, uh, and if you can use a privately, cur- privately issued currency to accomplish those transactions and an anonymous one, then you can get regulatory arbitrage around those kinds of things. Some of that's out and out illegal, but a lot of it's more gray area types of transactions, especially cross-border uh, types of transactions right. for which you would otherwise have to pay a big fee. So I, I would, you know, in the Chicago tradition, I would interpret this as a, a sort of regulatory arbitrage that's going on, and that's why cryptocurrencies are, are popular. Um, those that want to see my views on this, I did give a talk at the Coinbase conference a couple of years ago called Non-Uniform Currency and Exchange Rate Chaos, uh, which I think you can Google, and that will come right up, and, and I made a lot of comments about it. But but I think the um, <clears throat> one of the things that's in there is uh, that the, uh, you know, Friedman would have been against privately, current, privately issued currency. So despite being the Correct. the biggest advocate of free markets in the 20th century, when it came to money, it was supposed to be a government monopoly. Uh, and he was worried about the, uh, the uh, control over the money supply and control over the price level in the economy. So there is, there is a, uh, a concern, I suppose, that you would lose control of the money supply and lose control of the price level if you had too much private currency. But we did have this situation actually uh, pre-Civil War in the U.S., where about 90% of the outstanding currency stock was privately issued. Banks would issue pieces of paper, and they would get traded around, and different banks' uh, pieces of paper would trade at discounts against each other. And I think that's a great example of what's going on today, where you've got, you know, you're going to walk into the Starbucks, and you can pay with Ethereum, or you can pay with uh, Bitcoin, or you can pay with dollars, um, and these these different types of currency are fluctuating in value against each other. That's why I called the thing uh, exchange rate chaos. And mm-hmm. uh, socially, people did not like that system. They did not like no. this this <laughs> thing where you had a non-uniform currency. You've got all these different things uh, going on. They're trading at discounts against each other. It's fluctuating every day. You can't tell where you're at. And when we got to the Civil War, Congress acted and said, uh, no, we're going to have the Uniform Currency Act. And a dollar is a dollar, and that's that, and, and you have to accept it as a dollar. So um, so I think we're drifting back toward that kind of system um, with uh, non-uniform currency, but I don't think uh, the public will like it ultimately. Um. And and why why do you say you don't think the public would like that? If so, what if happened? You, what happened pre Civil War is that you would you would the, these different banks would issue notes, and uh, so you'd have Bank of America notes and J P Morgan notes, and and they'd sell it. You would get on your horse and you'd ride yeah. to the next they'd, town. Uh, but now your the the paper that you have in your satchel uh, is not worth as much. And so uh, there were actually books uh, that, uh, that people would open up books and, and figure out what the going exchange rate was for that type of money in that p- particular location. And um, so you couldn't buy as much whiskey, uh, you know, in the next town <laughs> as you could have in uh, okay. where you got the nose from. So um, that's the problem is the exchange rate chaos is that uh, these currencies uh, fluctuate against each other all the time. And we have an example of this because we have the, uh, even though we have a uniform currency within the U.S., we don't have a uniform currency internationally. And what do you see? You see exchange rate chaos. Uh, the exchange rates are moving all over the place, way more than fundamentals, and that's been a, a problem in the international monetary system since uh, the breakdown of Bretton Woods. Of course, Friedman was an advocate of floating exchange rates. <laughs> right. So uh, what I said uh, in this talk in, in was the that there were... No, he said, yeah. 
Yeah, what I said um, in this talk was that there are four ways to think about um, this uh, international monetary order and this exchange rate chaos. And Friedman would have said this is just markets at work. Some currencies are better than others, and they they and the fundamentals change, and so this is this is just prices uh, fluctuating. But others had very different views. Mundell, in particular, the father of the euro, said this was just dead weight loss. You could get rid of all this by just having one currency and then focus on the true relative prices uh, that uh, that you should be focusing on. Friedman yeah, and I, I, Friedman and Mundell I, I, supposedly I, I, argued in a seminar at Chicago. I don't know if you. Yes, no, I, I, I knew Robert. Um, no. I, I do want to say, though, if, I, if I'm right, and you, you, you've written the paper, but all these uh, bank notes used to sell at, like, various discounts to the gold. You know, Bank of America, two cents, and Bank of Unknown, 30 cents, and it would be different in different things. The thing about Bitcoin is it keeps on, it's certainly long run, has been going way up relative to the dollar and gold and everything else. Uh, never, never did any of those banknotes sell at premiums to the gold. Um, yeah, so um, I think that the bi- probably the biggest issue in the cryptocurrency world is free entry. Uh, anybody can do it, and there are thousands of these already. And uh, it does seem like you know profits would be competed away, uh, and so I'm not quite sure where we're of going course. in that dimension, and Friedman predicted that as well. He said that uh, if you allow private currency issuance, you're going to get a lot of issuance. That's one of the reasons but, he was he was against but it. But this is important, because if you want to defend the dollar, you can't have inflation, because, again, limited supply of Bitcoin by design gives it an inflation hedge, which fiat currency uh, does not. Well, the Bitcoin algorithm might have uh, limited supply, but the cryptocurrency market does not have limited supply. That's why I say free entry is the biggest issue here. You just get thousands and thousands of private currencies issued, and a lot of them don't get used at all. Professor, uh, this has been just a fantastic conversation, a monetarist tour de force, Jim Bullard, (laughs) president of the St. Louis Fed. We appreciate you spending the full hour with us on Behind the Markets like you have. This has been just an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for for joining us. Great. Thanks Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Jim. And Professor, I will continue to get your views on what's been happening at the Fed every week. We know inflation is a key story for the markets. Thanks for producer Patty Hall, our uh, sound engineer Dion Simpkins. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.